Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, part three of the Tupac series, Rebel of the Underground. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. In 1988, there were no rap or hip-hop artists on the Billboard 100. Artists like Bobby Brown, Michael Jackson, and Whitney Houston dominated the airwaves. At the time, there were a few radio stations that catered to the hip-hop community, and on those radio stations, the top artists were Eric B. and Rakim, Big Daddy Kane, and krs one this is before the gangster rap era, but the world was in transition and on the verge of a drug crisis, particularly in the ghettos of America. In 1982, while Tupac was transitioning from New York to Baltimore and the feds were hunting for Matulu Shakur, crack cocaine was beginning to ravage the ghettos of America. The drug so powerful it will empty the money from your pockets, make you sell the watch off your wrist, the clothes off your back. Or kill your mother. Yep, that's what we're saying. On the streets of New York, it's called crack, and the deals go down quickly. You've just witnessed a buy. This form of cocaine comes concentrated. It is smoked rather than sniffed. It produces an intense high within five to ten seconds that lasts only five to ten minutes and leaves the user craving for more. And this is the most addicting thing that probably ever existed in the world, you know? It will make you a slave. Families were being decimated by the crack epidemic and children were suffering the consequences. The war on drugs quickly became a war on black communities and the mandatory prison sentences began filling up the prisons. This war on drugs would find its voice in hip hop. This war on drugs would find its voice in hip hop and the world would come to know it as gangster rap. MCs and rappers like Schooly D and Ice-T would be the first to depict the reality of life in the ghettos of America into the lyrics with the release of Six in the Morning in 1986. Six in the morning, police at my door. Fresh Shadita squeak across the bathroom floor. Out my back window, I'm my escape. 
It would be here where a young Tupac Shakur would find himself straddling between the positive social justice rhetoric that he was exposed to and absorbing at home from his Black Panther bloodline and the reality of his life as a Feeney Shakur settled in Baltimore, Maryland, and began raising her two children on welfare. With Matulu running from the feds and Tupac's godfather serving a life sentence for trumped-up murder charges in California, Legs became the father figure to Tupac in New York. Legs was a street hustler who worked for the infamous Nicky Barnes. Tupac would spend his formative years watching and learning from Legs. Afini would teach Tupac book smarts, but Legs would teach Tupac about the streets. This changed when Legs was arrested for credit card fraud, just as Afini lost her paralegal job and the family uprooted and moved to Baltimore with dreams of new job opportunities and a new future. In 1988, living in Baltimore, Afini was working at night and struggling to make ends meet. Shortly after arriving in Baltimore, she got a call that Legs had died from a crack-induced cardiac arrest. Tupac had lost the only father figure he had in life. Afini had not had a serious relationship besides the casual relationship with Legs since her divorce from Matulu in 1982. In Afini's autobiography, Evolution of Revolution, Jasmine Guy shares that Set, Tupac's sister, remembered Afini telling the children that she would never bring a man into their home unless he could help improve their situation. But Afini's cousin would introduce Afini to a Muslim man from the local mosque, and soon the two began dating. Initially, the relationship was good, and eventually he was spending more time around the home and around the kids. But it doesn't last long, and soon Afini begins to find that someone is withdrawing money from her bank account and stealing from her using her ATM card. After catching him doing heroin in the basement of their home, Afini orders him out of the house, but he refuses to leave. When Afini reaches for the phone to call the police, he slaps the phone out of her hand, yanking it from the wall and punches her in the face five times, blackening both her eyes before running out of the back door of the small home. Prior to this, Tupac had not been exposed to domestic violence in the home. Matulu had always shown Afini the utmost respect. Legs never hit Afini, and Tupac felt burdened with the responsibility of protecting the women of his family. He was the man of the house, and when Afini prevented Tupac from retaliating, he translated that as an acceptance of violence inflicted upon her, and he resented her for it. This would prompt Afini to send her two children to California as she sought stability and a new start. Set had already been living in San Francisco with Asante, a former friend within the Black Panther Party movement in Marin City, and soon Tupac joined her. This move wasn't just about escape. It was a chance for a fresh beginning. In this unfamiliar setting, Tupac tried to blend into his new environment, writing poetry and honing his talents as a rapper, a skill that began in Baltimore but was becoming a large part of Tupac's being. He would draw content from his life experiences as Afini spiraled further and further out of control. In 
in the early 1980s, rap music wasn't a thing on the radio. I grew up in California, and where I grew up, there was one radio station that played hip-hop on Sundays from like 9 o'clock to like 12 noon. And Why everybody was, was at church? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that was when we would wash our cars. That's when, you know, and that's back when cassettes were a big thing. And so we would put the tape recorder to record, and that's how we got the rap music. We would record the mixes that were playing on the radio. Back then, you just didn't hear rap music. It's crazy. Yeah. Now, some of the bigger cities had stations that were dedicated to rap music. Some of the bigger cities like Los Angeles and, of course, New York, and they had radio stations that played rap more than where I was at. But that was life back then. And you just didn't hear rap on regular radio. A lot of the artists that were rapping back then, like you talked about KRS-One, like Public Enemy was a big group back then. And it was very black excellence focused and, and all about educating the black communities on activism and what was going on and, and that kind of stuff and, and being very positive, generally very positive. So almost like in alignment with the direction of like the Black Panther Party. Yeah. So kind of that whole activism kind of took root in the music at the time. Yeah. It was very positive message in the music and it was very uniting as opposed to, you know, destructive and then, of course, in the 1980s, as the crack epidemic started taking hold and families were being torn apart by crack, that's where the birth of gangster rap came out. I think Ice-T had the number, the second gangster rap song, and that was Six in the Morning. That changed the game, really. That really changed the game of rap, and it, it made it okay for rappers to talk about what was going on in their communities. So it was almost like a avenue of awareness but also an outlet for these artists to provide themselves some type of therapy through their writing yeah. as well around this time is about the time that the fbi is looking for matulu and matulu goes on the run and the same year that matulu is convicted is the same year that they move to marin city in california I think what's important about the conversation with Matulu is that Matulu was in Tupac's life and then he was gone. Right. And then Legs was in Tupac's life and then he was gone. Right. And it seems like every time there's a, a male figure in Tupac's life, there's some level of disappointment that comes with that person not being in his life anymore. And even the situation with the guy who put his hands on his mother, it's just one disappointment after another disappointment. A big part of Tupac's relationship with women comes from those men's relationship with his mom and the level of respect that Afeni taught Tupac to have towards women. I also feel like he had an attraction to women who had more of a strong personality. You know, whereas a lot of times you'll see a lot of males who will be attracted to more of your more feminine, dainty females, softer females. He seemed to have an attraction to women who were very well-spoken and very strong-willed, like his mom. Yeah. In learning more and more about Tupac, I really feel like this move to California was the catalyst to all of their lives making a drastic turn for the better. And even though under the circumstances as to why they moved and, you know, during that time they, they had a rough transition, I feel like this is where when he writes about the flower from the concrete, that's kind of where this came from. 
So what prompted the move to California was very sudden for Afini. So Afini was trying to send her kids to California and they were staying with Asante, whose husband was in prison at the time. First, she sent Set there. And then when Tupac was having an issue with her living boyfriend after, after the assault, then she sent Tupac there. What she didn't know is that that lady that they were staying with, she was a severe alcoholic and she was extremely abusive when she got drunk. And so she was constantly taking out her anger on set, who was probably like maybe 11, 12 years old, and Tupac. And so set hated Asante, hated her. <laughs> and one day Asante called Afini when she was still in Baltimore and she said, hey, you need to come here now because I'm checking myself into rehab and left the kids with the neighbor. Wow. By the time... Afini got there. There was a note on the door from Sat letting her know where they were. <laughs> At 17 years old and a senior, Tupac was trying to pursue his passions within the performance arts program of Tamapias High School while balancing his life struggles at home. It was here that Tupac conducted his very first interview, offering a captivating perspective on his high school experiences, describing social issues that impacted teenagers and the burden of responsibility. In this generation, I don't think that a lot of adults put enough into their children. I'm glad my mother did, but I don't think that a lot of children growing up lost in the sorts. And I think that they're scared because they're realizing it now that, uh-oh, we didn't, we didn't, I didn't teach him this, I didn't teach him that. We didn't learn it unsafe sex and drugs and you can tell if you look at the statistics they they're staggering again you know and so i think they're scared because they're realizing that they goofed they really messed up also teenagers are angry at least this generation seems a little angrier than me and a little bit more rebellious and uninvolved so they're scared because they're realizing that you know what's going to happen when you know these people in power but also just because it's human nature to be scared to watch a child grow up and you don't want to give him that yet. Later, his observations would lay the foundation for his role as a social commentator and activist. Despite the prospects that Tamalpius offered, Tupac was short science credits and the school required that he return the next year to complete the credits. No one knew that Tupac, after several arguments with his mom, had left home and moved into an abandoned building with his friends. He initially attempted to sell drugs, but when he heard about his mom purchasing crack from the other dealers, he curbed the drug dealing and instead tried to get a part-time job at a fast food restaurant or a pizza shop. He would state in an interview later that he had begun to block Afini out of his mind. With an obsession to express his ideas, his poems and his songs, Tupac was always writing. Only 18 and he was already driven by a sense of purpose with a pen and a pad. Tupac set out to make his mark on the world. In 1989, just shy of graduating from high school, Tupac had been living with a group of friends who called themselves the One Nation. They would spend time smoking weed, drinking, and freestyling. Tupac, who had been attending the occasional class, eventually just stopped going to school altogether. Afini had developed a severe addiction to crack cocaine, and she would disappear for months at a time, leaving young Set, her youngest daughter, at home alone. Set found herself alone and lost in dealing with her own challenges. She began dating older men and often depended on them to help her with food and to pay the monthly rent on the Section 8 subsidized housing where she lived. It was $5. She was only 12 years old and never missed a day of school. 
One of Afini's friends from the Black Panther Party, Watani Tiambi, was organizing youth programs throughout the ghettos of South Central Los Angeles, and he invited Tupac to go to L.A. with him, thinking that a change of scenery would do him some good. But Tupac found that the political activist work was kind of dull and disconnected from what the youth were craving in terms of guidance, and he wanted to do things differently than his mother had done them. Chance or fate would bring him to a guiding light. Tupac stumbled upon Leila Steinberg in a park in Marin City. The young white girl was giving a workshop on how to use music to build self-esteem and was reading from Winnie Mandela's A Part of My Soul Went With Him. As Tupac listened to her read, he stated, That's a good one, it really moves well. When Leila spun around, Tupac was smiling. You really read it? she asked. Tupac began reciting quotations from memory. So this school wasn't comparable to the school that he was at in Baltimore for him. Right. He definitely didn't have the social environment that he had at the other school where everybody was very blended, got along very well. At the school in Baltimore, he didn't feel like the students were divided by class. But once social he got, class. But once he got to Marin, he felt like that high school, and granted, too, this is his senior year. Most of these guys have, or girls have already known each other for, you know, at least a few years at that school. He's a new kid, his last year of school. That's already going to be, you know, an uncomfortable transition. And then with all the, the things that occurred to prompt their move and then the things that occurred right after he got there, that's pretty difficult for somebody being in high school. But something that I think is pretty incredible is that when he does that first interview and he's speaking about not just his high school experience, but speaking about how the things he's gone through in his life were preparing him for becoming an adult. He speaks about that and he speaks about the mistakes sometimes that parents make in a sense of maybe coddling them a little bit and not allowing for them to, you know, not making things super hard for them either, but to provide them with experiences that equip them to be productive and successful adults later on in life. And so he doesn't complain about his situation. He doesn't say, poor me, or he doesn't use it as a crutch. Like he really owns what he's been through and owns it as it is what it is. And it's helping me be a better version of myself. Yeah. And it's giving them content to write. Right. At 17. Yeah. Like yeah. You're, you've lived a lot more than most people at that point. Right. And the things that he's talking about are struggles that people are experiencing in their 20s, 30s, 40s. It's relatable. You hear his song and you're like, I'm going through that. I'm struggling right. with that. You know, set Tupac's sister. She really has it tough. As the cup holder for the trauma, I, I literally just swallowed all of the pain and, and didn't never knew had a, I didn't have a vehicle like my brother did of or of the arts to release it. And so it came out with rage and, and then as a teenager came out as searching for, for love with, sex and and bad relationships and then abusive relationships and um then abuse of just dealing with abuse and and <clears throat> um biological families and allow and accepting abuse from strangers and accepting just not love what what doesn't come what doesn't equate to love what i accepted it as and suffered from 
what eventually I found to be PTSD, extreme PTSD, but it looked a lot like for a lot of my life and was misdiagnosed a lot of my life as bipolar um, because of the way that my levels, you know, my reaction times, uh, my total recall from the pain or from triggers, and um, so I, because it looked like bipolarism, I concentrated on therapy for like 25 years and I just that was in constant therapy and making sure that I was I felt like I wasn't understood I couldn't my, my, excuse me my emotions was louder than my voice mm-hmm. and my emotions was, was so loud so loud that I realized that my heart wasn't the first I wasn't leading with my heart mm-hmm. I was leading to my fear and my emotions I was the fragile one of the family you know of many a suicide attempt, um, low self-value or vision of myself, and um, the fact that I'm, I'm, I have survived is the biggest lesson that I got from my brother and my mom, that not that I have, but I can, and, and that I'm not the weakest, and I'm not the most vulnerable, mm-hmm. and that the universe, um, and they somehow thought it was um, that I was worthy of survive 12 years old she's alone she's in the apartment by herself she's got to fend for herself i know tupac's probably bringing her money when he can he's doing what he can to help his sister make sure she's eating and mom just disappears for months at a time it's really sad she talks about how she didn't have a mom there to like tell her what was going on with her body when she had her first cycle Things like that that are just basic things that you just wouldn't even think about. And she grows up very fast. I think sometimes we think about Tupac's struggle and the tough things that he went through, which is significant. But we forget that he had a 12-year-old sister at home that was also going through those same things. Yeah. And, you know, even picturing her putting a note on the outside of the door saying, hey, we went over here. Like, I think about an 11 or 12-year-old now, that wouldn't happen. In Tupac's situation and in Seth's situation, seeing that she was having to own her situation and do things that most people would think she needed to be older to do. She was doing them and she was doing them well. It's not to judge. It's just to say that she went through some stuff and she had to grow up fast and she had to survive as well. Right. When Tupac goes to LA to do the uh, youth programs with Watani, he doesn't like it. I don't even think that. I think that he really appreciated what Matulu did and what his mom did and I feel like both him and Set drew from that and wanted to do things that were positive for the community and that helped the people within their community to be the best versions of themselves. But I don't think he wanted to do it the same way. And so I think for him, the old style, it's almost like, you know, needing to upgrade, you know, the old style of, of being an activist, he wanted to amp it up. He didn't right. want to do the old boring style of, you know, activism. He right. wanted to do it in a manner that maybe was very cerebral for a lot of people. And at that period of time, he even assesses how the youth is. He talks about how the youth is angry and he talks about why. And so I feel like he's used writing and music as therapy and he knows how well it works and how it can help in even your level of education. And I think he wanted to share that. And 
he was able to do something he loved, share that, and also do that activism, but in a different way. Right. And then he runs into Layla Steinberg, and, and what a blessing to run into the right person at the right time because she's got connections in the music business. Just some random person in a park, just a random person in a park reading from a book, and he just happens to engage with that person, and there's a relationship that's built there. I think they were meant to come into each other's paths because sure. she was an incredible mentor for Tupac, but I also think that at that point in her life, he also provided something for her life as well. The reason Tupac came about is because I kept saying, oh gosh, I mean, I loved everyone, but I kept saying, we need a, a rapper that is about social justice, that gets some of the same things. I kept looking for someone that was kind of like me, that read like crazy and that could tackle issues that we don't talk about. Public Enemy was too radical. Like there were artists that were um, in hip hop that were using their voices, yeah. but they couldn't penetrate the schools because they were too extreme. And I was looking for somebody that could straddle these worlds like I could. And one day Lawanda, who was one of the art group members, said there was a kid that just came from Baltimore and he was it. So this went on for some months because I didn't know if she knew what it was, but she's the reason Pop came to the group, and she was right. Layla Steinberg was born on December 18th of 1961. She was the daughter of a Polish defense attorney and a politically active Mexican mother who grew up in South Central Los Angeles in the 1970s. In the 1980s, Layla found herself working as a backup dancer and spent her young adult life touring with musicians. In 1987, Layla moved to the Bay Area at the age of 25, fueled by a desire to change the educational system. Layla's husband was a DJ and they shared two children. It is here where Layla combined her love of music with the desire to help at-risk youth that she began a poetry workshop which began attracting the kids from the impoverished neighborhoods of Marin City. A chance meeting, the meeting of two kindred spirits, and soon Tupac found himself walking into Layla's poetry workshop, and then into her home, where he stayed with her family. It is here where many of the poems found in Tupac's posthumously released book, The Rose That Grew From the Concrete, were written. Poems like The Power of a Smile, The Power of a Gun Can Kill, and The Power of Fire Can Burn, The Power of Wind Can Chill, and The Power of a Mind Can Learn, The Power of Anger Can Rage Inside Until It Tears You Apart, But The Power of a Smile, Especially Yours, Can Heal a Frozen Heart. Tupac's poetic and lyrical talent would begin to blossom in Layla's poetry workshop, and eventually Tupac would take over the program, challenging Layla's methods and turning the weekly workshop events into the mic sessions. This was a pivotal time as Tupac searched for his voice. He worked on his flow and found his way through words and verses. Eventually, Layla, recognizing the extraordinary talent burning within young Tupac, took him under her wing. The mentor-mentee relationship soon transformed the energized Tupac, and he elected her his manager in one broad statement. 
you're going to be my manager. And just like that, she was. Their partnership would grow through the years, and upon his death, Tupac would bequeath volumes of writings and poems to Layla's care. Tupac and Layla's relationship transcended conventional artist-manager dynamics. It was a profound connection founded on trust, mentorship, and shared aspirations. Their collaboration not only paved the way for Tupac's success in the music industry, but also fostered his development as an activist. Layla encouraged him to use his lyrical prowess to shed light on pressing social issues, shaping him into the influential voice for change that he would become. She warned him to stay away from the gangster rap as she transferred his management to the more capable Atron. As Tupac's fame skyrocketed, Layla remained a steadfast friend and confidant, a testament to the enduring impact of mentorship in the tumultuous world of fame and creativity. Hey there, fellow true crime enthusiasts and body of crime listeners. As true crime lovers, we're excited to deep dive the Tupac series with our listeners. But before we dive into the dark and mysterious world of crime, I want to tell you about a fantastic local art studio right here in Houston, Texas that you won't want to miss. It's called Province 8 Art Studio, and they have a massive selection of original art to include a large selection of urban and hip-hop art that truly captures the essence of our city. If you're local, then you can find them at 17037 Farm to Market road 529 is just a stone throw away from where our podcast is produced it's truly a mecca for all things creative from poetry open mic nights recording studio sessions to art classes this is truly a one-stop art depot for the truly creatives but what makes province 8 art studio even more special is their incredible tupac shakur art pieces of which they have several to include our tupac series cover art i'm sure you've seen it on the latest episodes cover tupac playing a guitar standing in front of a microphone capturing the raw energy of his music and spirit. This is an original six foot by four foot canvas piece by Ezra Hezekiah for sale and it can be purchased and shipped worldwide. They ship worldwide? They do. Even six foot pieces like jamming out Tupac? They do. Bigger ones than that. And by going directly to the artist's webpage at www.blackrhinoartgroup.com, you can pick and choose the material, the size, and even the format of your choosing if you're not ready to splurge on the original. You can even get special edition prints, original paintings, digital art. There's so many options. And if you're a decorator like me, you might want to throw in some throw pillows. You might want to get you an ashtray. Might even want to get you some swag. The attention to detail and the way they bring Tupac to life through art is truly remarkable. It's a must-see for any Tupac fan or anyone who really truly appreciates the fusion of art and hip-hop culture. So listeners, do yourself a favor and check out Province 8 Art Studio. Visit their website at www.province8artstudio.com or pay them a visit in person. You'll be blown away by their urban and hip-hop art collection and of course that incredible Tupac Shakur piece. Support local artists and immerse yourself in a world of art inspired by the legends of hip-hop. Province 8 Art Studio is where creativity meets culture. Tell them Joe or Crystal from Body of Crime sent you. We'll post a link in the show notes. Layla was, she was tied into the music industry already. She had some connections in the music business and she was already friends with Atron. She knew who Atron was and she was she was connected to him some kind of way. And I think that 
she was a a grounding for Tupac. He could have met anybody. Right. But he met somebody who was in tuned with what he was doing and what where he was going. He was already poetic. And then he meets Layla. That's not a coincidence. That's right. definitely fate. The powerful dynamic there is that she really knew how to sharpen him. She also knew enough about the industry to guide him. And so he wasn't going into things blind. So he wasn't going in with these dreams and aspirations and not having any help in that journey. Right. In his poem that you read, The Power of a Smile, it makes me wonder who he's talking about. The poem is profound. It's a deep poem. And he talks about anger and he talks about tears. It's more about what's going on inside of him. I think it's personal. I think Tupac was angry, like his mom was angry. And he talks about a frozen heart. Whose heart would be frozen? His. He's trying to block his mom out. He's putting up a wall. He's trying not to love her because he's hurt. We talk about Tupac finding his voice in his music and in his poetry. And for a lot of people who don't write music or are not into writing music or writing songs and stuff like that, a lot of times when you're writing music, you have influences that based off of what you who you listen to and who you like as artists. And so a part of you begins to like mimic those styles of music or the, that if, if a person flows a certain kind of way, you kind of flow a little bit like them at first and you sound a little bit like them because you're trying to mimic what you're hearing and what you're seeing. This is you trying to find your place in the music. And at first, Tupac doesn't have his own voice. So his music changes. You hear his music change from when he first starts rapping with his friends to when he starts doing the, the music in Tupacalypse. So Tupacalypse sounds completely different than his next album. It does. And the reason why is because he's finding his voice. As he's finding his voice, he's finding his own cadence, his own flow, his own syntax of how he speaks and, and how he flows to, to the beat and how he catches the beat and he rides the beat. And that's what we talk about when we say Tupac was looking to find his own voice. He still doesn't know what he sounds like. Right. And what he's going to sound like as, as, he, as he matures in the business. And he was honing those skills as he was kind of working with his friends and he's rapping and he's freestyling and he's, and he's finding his groove, you know, and that's part of the, the that's part of the process. Atron Gregory was born on January 27th, 1959 in California. He was one of the co-founders and co-managers of the world-class wrecking crew, which included two future rappers from NWA, DJ Yella and Dr. Dre. He would later become a tour manager for NWA at the height of their breakout, the group which later included Eazy-E, MC Ren, and Ice Cube. When Atron was ready to branch off and start his own management label, he created TNT Recordings, and one of his initial acts was the unique party powerhouse group, Digital Underground. Through Layla's connection with Atron Gregory, she was able to connect Tupac with the up-and-coming rap group, Digital Underground. Atron signed Tupac to TNT Recordings and began to shop his demo for a distribution deal. He had two songs on his demo. One was Trapped. I think the other one was Brenda Got a Baby. While waiting for a deal, Shock G agreed to allow Tupac to be a roadie for the group. Shock G recognized Tupac's talent immediately and worked with Atron to shop Tupac's demo, but found one rejection after another. Tupac would eventually go on tour with Digital Underground, and during those tours, Tupac was entrusted with the mundane task of setting up, tearing down, carrying the turntables and the records, setting up microphones. During the shows, Tupac performed as a backup dancer, 
but he couldn't get on the microphone yet. He was still earning that right. But during the after shows, those were the moments where Tupac was allowed to shine his brightest. With Shock G playing the piano, the roadie was allowed to rock the mic, rap, and freestyle. Shock G would say that Tupac was one of the best. This experience would prove instrumental in shaping his future career. As Tupac's demo cassette got passed from one record label to another, Atron scheduled studio sessions for Tupac, and before long, Tupac had enough songs for an entire solo album. Many label A&Rs didn't think he was polished enough as an artist or had a unique enough sound yet. His own unique voice. Tupac thought it was the party music connection from Digital Underground and felt that a grittier gangster rap direction was more aligned with his persona. NWA and Ice Cube had made gangster rap mainstream and Tupac related to those experiences on a profound level. While still shopping Tupac's unwanted demo, Digital Underground rapper Money B came into town to audition for the part of Bishop in a new movie that was being filmed called Juice. Tupac had acting experience and so he helped Money B prep for the role and gave the rapper pointers. Money B, who lacked acting experience, failed to razzle-dazzle the casting directors. Tupac had the opportunity to read for the part and shockingly wowed the casting directors. They cast him on the spot. In a posthumous article on Vanity Fair, To Die Like a Gangster, written by Robert Sam Anson after Tupac's death, he recalls a conversation between Tupac and the Juice director, Neil Moritz, after they had wrapped shooting the movie, Juice. Moritz was teasing Tupac for spending so much of his money on jewelry. Tupac was said to have quoted Robert Frost's poem, So dawn goes down the day, nothing gold can stay. Moritz would say, 10 years from now, you're going to be a big star, Tupac. Tupac perfectly replied, I'm not going to be alive in 10 years. Atron's had a big influence on the music business, especially on the gangster rap on the West Coast side. He's from California. He's worked with Dr. Dre when Dr. Dre wasn't even a big star when he was with the Wrecking Crew. They had like one hit. But then he goes on to um, be a part of the NWA and, and that. And so he's got a lot of experience and he's got a lot of connections in the music business. And Layla is able to connect Tupac to him and they see the value in Tupac. And immediately they're trying to shop his demo. It's really tough to break into the music business. You know, what's funny is when I was looking into Layla and I was getting ready to reach out to her, I saw some messages that people were sending her and honestly they they made me laugh because i see the work that went into tupac creating this connection and it was very deliberate so he wasn't just happened to be somewhere and somebody hearing him sing or hearing him rap you know like he was actively pursuing what he loved and he was he was letting people know like I'm hungry I want this I want to do this I'm willing to do whatever it is that I need to do to get better to be better and to put myself in a better situation and I'm willing to help you too and so when I'm seeing some of these messages there was one message where all the person says is sign me no link to no song no description of who you are that's crazy it made me laugh and then i'm thinking like you're hoping that there's just one but there's multiple of those right 
And I'm thinking, I don't know if people think in any occupation or in, you know, especially in a field where not everybody makes it. Tupac wouldn't have made it if he would have gave up when people were saying, nah, don't really care about your demo. Don't really like it. You know, if, if he, if he would have taken that and said, oh, they don't think I'm good. I'm just going to quit. Right. You know, we wouldn't have had a Tupac. Yeah. And there was a, there was a moment where he actually thought about quitting. Right. He was like, you know, I'm, this is, it's not happening. I might go do something different. And he thought about it and was like, eh, this is what I want to do. I'm going to stick with it. You know what? I'm going to carry the boxes. I'm going to put up the mics. I'm going to pack the bags. I'm going to do all those things that nobody wants to do because I want this. Right. That's like applying for a job and just walking in to a, an establishment and going, hey, guys, hire me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> who, who are you, first of all? Yeah. <laughs> and why should I hire you, you know? But then I'm thinking, you're, you know, like your message comes off as spam. Yeah. It's, there's there's nothing special about nah, it. Nothing. You, you don't show that you're anybody special. Nah. None of that. You're so, not special. Yeah. So don't do it. People have a tendency to feel entitled. You got to put in the work and you got to be consistent. You got to show up every day and you got to prove that you want it. You got to put more in the link and TikTok to get a view. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, these guys are really working for, for Tupac trying to get his record signed. Obviously, it's because it's going to benefit them too, but they believe in him right. when nobody else is believing in him. And I think that's, that gives him the energy to stick with it and go on the tour. Right. And sometimes that little push from other people is what you need. So when you're hearing a thousand no's, hearing a few like, hey, listen, man, you got something special. That's enough to push that person to continue on just a little bit further and just a little bit further so that they can pass that line. Right. Now, Tupac gets an opportunity to go with Money B. And here's one of the things that I like about this story about him and Money B going to do this audition with Juice. It was Money B's audition. And Tupac wanted to help him. Right. Tupac prepped him, told him what to do, told him how to read, told him how to act. Because Money B had no experience with acting, but Tupac did. And so when Money B goes in and completely flops, Tupac sees an opportunity and he takes it. Again, he's where he needs to be. He's at the place where he needs to be. An opportunity is presented and he's taking the opportunity. He did it with Layla. And in here, he's like, I can play this part. Well, go ahead and read. You're here. Go ahead and read. And he did a phenomenal job. And they, uh, they cast him for the movie right away. It would put him on the map. In 1991, while the filming of Juice was coming to an end, Atron had finally found someone interested in Tupac's demo, a newly formed independent record label, Interscope, owned by Ted Field and Jimmy Iovine in a partnership with Time Warner. They were looking to build up their stable of rap artists. Tupac Shakur unleashed his debut solo album, Tupacalypse Now. It was different than other gangster rap, as the tracks were not aimed at sensationalizing street violence and instead took a social-political view at discussing important topics that were affecting the youth of the nation, something that Layla encouraged him to do. Topics such as police brutality, teenage pregnancy, single-parent households, lack of black fathers, and the horrors of drug addiction connected with kids across the world. 
Tupacalypse Now was a controversial record, and it brought many issues to the forefront to be discussed. Politicians moved to silence the gangster rhetoric, claiming it was inciting violence and encouraging kids to kill cops. Although it sparked controversy and faced backlash, the album was well-received critically and garnered a dedicated following. Tupac's unmistakable voice and poetic storytelling set him on the path to becoming a hip-hop legend. Juice was a movie about four black Harlem teens who were experiencing what was quickly being recognized as a common life for minorities growing up in impoverished communities. The boys lacking interest in school, skip school regularly and experience the threats of police violence and the violence of other gang members in the city. Bishop played by Tupac decides that to gain respect or juice, they must do something big. They decide to rob a liquor store, where Bishop accidentally shoots and kills the store owner. The ensuing drama follows as Bishop, spiraling out of control from a thirst for respect and a paranoia as he murders each of his friends, finally attempting to set up Q, his best friend for the murders. The movie ends with Bishop falling to his death after a fight with Q, transferring the juice to the surviving friend. When Juice finally released in 1992, it surges sales of Tupacalypse and Tupac instantly becomes larger than life. The film, a commercial success, receives favorable reviews and solidifies Tupac's status as both a compelling musician and an emerging actor. In 1991, shortly after the release of Tupacalypse, Tupac and his entourage were approached by officers for a jaywalking violation. A confrontation quickly escalated, leading to allegations that Tupac had attacked the officers. He was subsequently arrested, and the case became a high-profile legal battle that stirred debates about police brutality and Tupac's own volatile temperament. Shock G and Money B from Digital Underground would both go on to tell stories about Tupac losing his cool during his time with Digital Underground. Stories where Tupac would fly off the handle, lose his temper, punch, kick, slap, and attack anyone at the slightest provocation. I've seen him spit in police officers' face when there was nobody but us three on a dark street in Oakland. You know? Pac almost got us killed in Richmond, Virginia. I know them brothers remember that time they backed us out of this club, this after-hours place in Richmond, Virginia, four in the morning. This one cat claimed Pac stepped on his shoe and they got into a little spat and then it was like, I'm going to see who got the juice and said something disrespectful to Pac, and Pac started cursing him out. This whole club turned against us, all black, all ghetto, after hours lounge. 10 minutes later, we're taking pictures, and everybody's walking us around. We're all spread out. There's four of us there, me, Pac, Money B, and Sophia. And uh, Pac challenged this cat, and it got ugly, and then Pac was like, yo, man, shot. We out. Yo, we got beef. Uh, we didn't even know what was going on until we walked over there. Uh, so we all got next to Pac, and they were backing us out of the club. Then they backed us out against the brick wall. And at the point that I was grabbing, holding Pac, trying to get him to shut up, still putting him in the cab, he was still challenging. It was like 40 or 50 cats that we were going to have to fight at one point because they were starting to build up out of the clock behind, you know. Fuck them California niggas. Yo, T-Roy, I got you, cat. Yeah, yeah, that's you, Mike. Yeah, that's me. What? We'll send him back to Cali right. And then more and more were ganging up. And Pac was like, what? 
How y'all gonna do that to me? I'm not scared of none of y'all. I'm not scared of none of y'all. Pac was just discovering the streets, and camaraderie, and manhood, guns. Feeney stated in her autobiography that she had fought when she was younger before joining the Disciples because she was afraid and lacked safety. Later, she fought because she was angry. What was Tupac afraid of? Was he afraid of being identified as soft? Growing up, they called him pretty boy and he was said to have girly hands. Was he afraid of being bullied? He had been teased and called names his entire life. He wore bummy clothes to school, holes in his clothes, and was poor growing up. His mother was a crackhead. The worst thing a mother could be in the 1980s. Was he afraid of being rejected? Was he afraid of not being accepted? Or was Tupac angry? Angry at a world that stole his mother's strength and her beauty. She was his hero his entire life. A larger than life role model until she wasn't anymore. Was he angry that he hadn't had the opportunity to pursue his dreams without struggle? Or was he angry that he never had a father to teach him that controlling his anger is more gangster than losing it? Life lessons he would learn repetitively until his death. Ultimately, Tupac sued the Oakland Police Department for $10 million, and they settled for less than 45 k After Tupac's death, Afini would say that this event was a pivotal moment in Tupac's life. He never recovered emotionally from the unprovoked assault from the Oakland police officers. It would be his first victimization at the hands of law enforcement, but it would not be his last. I really feel like at this point in Tupac's journey that he really was set up for success with who he was surrounded by at the time because him working with someone else for a part that they in the end didn't get could have created some type of animosity but it didn't so instead while he's recording for this movie and he doesn't know that this is going to help with his album sales while he's recording for this movie that same guy is helping push his demo out to people and during that time that gives Tupac an opportunity to break out into the music scene and that wouldn't have been possible, at least not at that time, without that person. And so I think that that's right. That's awesome. No, that is good. His album comes out, and it's it's provocative and it's it's engaging. And when the movie comes out, people correlate that character of Bishop with the music coming off Tupacalypse now. And now they they see Tupac as being Bishop. Tupac is Bishop for them. Tupac played that role so well that he really did become Bishop. The relationship with the police. So you have to think Tupac grew up hearing about police brutality. He heard about it from his mom. He heard about it from Matulu. He heard about it from his godfather, Geronimo Pratt. He heard it from Asada Shakur, his godmother. He'd always heard about police brutality, but he'd never experienced it until this moment in Oakland. And he was very big on respect. You can tell in the interview that he did at 17 years old, where he's talking about earning respect and showing people respect. And 
And I really feel like that says a lot about who he was and how he grew up and the values that he learned, the character that he built. And it helps you understand why when he's being respectful and somebody is in turn being disrespectful to him, we also know that he has a very high sense of justice, very high character of justice. So it wasn't going to be okay for him for somebody to be disrespectful to him or to anybody who was with him. And I know that I've experienced it myself. Police officers don't like being questioned. They don't like being challenged, especially when they feel that they have a certain level of authority over you. But these are real challenges in these communities. The cops are overworked. They're underpaid. They're constantly on edge. They're constantly being targeted. They build a us versus them mentality that's hard to overcome. It takes a strong person to not get wrapped up in that mindset of it's us versus them and every day's war. But, you know, in order for you to get over that hurdle, you have to get to know the people in the environment where you're policing. Yeah, that's true. You have to build a relationship with them. You have to build trust with them. Yeah. It takes a long time to do that. Yeah. I compare Tupac to Afini because I see the correlation in their lives at that age when they're in their teenage years going into their adulthood. Afini had the same struggles that that Tupac had. It's almost a mirror image. She fought. She was angry. She was scared. I see the same things in Tupac as he's getting ready to step out into the world. I see him being afraid. I see him being scared of being rejected for his music or not being accepted or not being tough enough, being a small guy. Like he's a small dude, not being tough enough or not being seen as being tough enough. You know, some people talk about he was a little bit feminine, like in his high school years. That's a possibility. That doesn't mean he's gay. And at that time in that environment and that, you know, era, that wasn't acceptable anyways. So that would have been hard, even if that was the direction that he was going in. And so, you know, for you to feel you've got a strong mom, you've had to deal with these situations, you're living in a bad area, you're exposed to all these different things. You're around people who are, who are very tough. You're getting into an, into a scene where gangster rap's big now or becoming big at this point in time. And so you're trying to adjust to your environment And I feel like that's what he was doing. But as you get to know him, you realize he's not a gangster at all. He's not Bishop. No, (laughs) it's a persona, you know? Right. So, and he gives us a hint of that in in an interview. It's like MTV, all the papers, they building me up. Now they destroying me on the same image that they perpetuated. You know what I'm saying? I'm selling records. This is what I do for a living. I'm selling records. Don't get it twisted. This is not my real life. This is not how my real life is supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be really having all these villains in my life. I'm not supposed to be having, you know, the, the um, Philadelphia. I can't do shows. All, everybody's already, I'm guilty. Even though the, the only crime I've been convicted of is fighting. Hitting somebody in the face with my fists, ever. Only crime. But I can't even go to Philly. I can't go to Texas. I can't go nowhere. I can't go nowhere. So I'm a performer. I'm an actor. I'm a musician. I'm not supposed to have these real life villains in my life. Like, I'm not really supposed to be going through this stuff. I'm not a gangster. But when you put out energy, you get that energy back. Whether you're a gangster or not. 
If you pretend to be a gangster and you walk around with a chip on your shoulder and you put out negative energy, negative energy will come back. It happens repetitively in his life. He puts out a negative energy, maybe not intentionally, but he puts out negative energy and then negative energy comes back. I think that, you know, there's some anger there too. There's some anger because he's had a tough life. And I think he's angry at the men in his life that aren't there. He's angry that his mom's not there. He's angry that he's got to be the man of the house. And he's angry that he's got to struggle. You know, it's tough for him. He talks about taking a foreign language in school in his interview and saying like, what do I need to learn German for? I ain't going to Germany. I can't afford to go to Germany. <laughs> like yeah. basically it's a waste. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of your resources. Like teach me something that I can use. Absolutely. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. And that's why I'm saying, you know, at, at 17, he was a, he was wise at 17. Yeah. In less than three years, Tupac would skyrocket from pot smoking, pizza flipping, poetry writing, high school teenager to one of the biggest rap stars the world has ever known. His poetry would be immortalized in books and studied in colleges after his death. His first album would become classics, and the music he recorded before anyone ever wanted to sign him would be released posthumously. A true rag-to-riches story as Tupac pushed his way into a life that had tried to prevent him from realizing his destiny. He struggled to find balance between who he was and who he wanted to be, but he would not be denied. As he found his voice and sought to step into his power, his fears would weaken him, his anger would make him vulnerable, and his lack of guidance would make him a target. Stay with us as we continue to deep dive the life and death of Tupac Shakur, as his life takes a meteoric rise and he climbs to new heights, even he never anticipated. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate to contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.